Episode 19, Artist Arshia Haq. My name is Michael Delgado and I'm your host. I come to you each week from the fantastic library bar and the spectacular Mayfair Hotel right here in downtown LA. Tonight, I'm meeting artist, filmmaker, DJ, and musicologist Arshia Hawk. She strides confidently straight to the front desk, not bothering to scan the room. It's the mark of a no-nonsense world traveler. She's not embarrassed to expedite her mission with a quick question. Fingered by the clerk across the lobby, I can only smile sheepishly. It's time to meet. You know Geiger's bookstore across the street? I think I may have passed. You know Geiger by sight? Geiger's in his early 40s, medium height, fattish, soft all over, Charlie Chan mustache, well-dressed, wears a black hat, affects the knowledge of antiques and hasn't any. Oh, yes, I think his left eye is glass. Hello. 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 My guest today is the fascinating young artist Arshia Haq. Arshia works across multiple mediums, including film, visual art, performance, and sound, and is currently exploring themes of mysticism, particularly within the Islamic Sufi context. She's the founder of Discostan, a collaborative decolonial project whose narrative threads include migration, celebration, warfare, nostalgia, homeland, and borders, often within the realm of Islamic influence, all producing a kaleidoscopic reinvention of pop culture. Huck's work has been featured at The Broad, Toronto International Film Festival, MoMA, The Hammer Museum, UC Irvine's Global Visions Program, the George Pompidou Center, and she was recently selected as a cultural programmer for the Los Angeles Islam Arts Initiative. She recently released an album of Sufi field recordings from Pakistan on the Sublime Frequencies label. She's a very interesting person, and you're going to enjoy this interview. Welcome, Arshia Haq. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We're excited to have you on because really interested in your work and um, how you present yourself and all the projects that you're on, especially the ones around involving music. What I was hoping was maybe you could start as a place to start if you could describe the most recent performance at Lays. I think that's it's, it's a good place. It's kind of a culmination of a few different things that I've been exploring over the last few years. Um, so I was part of a show at Lays called Unraveling Collective Forms. It was curated by Daniela Lieja Quintena. Quinteja? Mm-hmm. And um, it's kind of around the idea of indigenous resistant mo- resistance movements, collective action, um, and these kinds of things. So you know, there's a few projects that I'd been I'd been developing over the years that Daniela had asked me about, but one of them was that I had been putting up freeway signs with a collaborator, um, Andrew Kazakis, since the election of Trump, and. You know, it was totally guerrilla work, just getting out there and putting messages up. I'm sure you've seen the fuck Trump or no ice <laughs> kinds of signs. So that wasn't me. <laughs> there's actually wow. one guy. You're pretty prolific. <laughs> I've seen a lot of those. No, no, there's one guy. Um, I, he's, he has kind of like a one word title that he goes by, which I can't remember right now. But he he's kind of the person behind a lot of it, um, a, a lot of those signs. But the messages that we were doing were a little more 
mysterious or abstract or borrowing from poetry or verse. So the first one that we did was uh, a verse from the Bible, which was, uh, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And it just seemed like, of course, you know, considering all of the dialogue that was going on as, as Trump came into office around exclusions and building walls um, and the interesting association of those groups often with the Christian yeah. right wing. Yeah, and then, I never understood that. Yeah, it's because the message in the Bible, I mean, this is Jesus Jesus' yeah, words yes. to his populace, uh, you know, we use that message and then, you know, there's been other things that we've done that are a little more anarchistic. But when Daniela asked me, recently I had just driven under a freeway and there was a guy holding a sign. Uh, and that was the first time I'd seen that. And the sign said, Jesus saves. And so I thought, well, that's interesting to have a body there with, with the sign. Because the signs were obviously anonymous when mm-hmm. we put them up. It wasn't, you know... It's kind of a, I mean, I really love working in spaces that are not galleries. Right. Um, you know, I mean, it's a pretty great place. Like thousands of people are passing by on a freeway to get your message across to people totally free, um, unless you get caught, of course. But I, um, yeah, so I'm interested in... Well, I mean, if you hang a sign, it's not so bad. But if you're going to deface it and vandalize them... Yeah, yeah. No, so I haven't gotten into that kind of that kind of thing. Um, but you know, yeah, just kind of putting these, these signs up. So I, I, I got the idea of having a whole group of people with these signs standing at the freeway. And, and I thought of put, making these signs in, um, in kind of a material that would be used for marketing, which was, you know, this kind of sequined billboard, uh, production method that you'll often see for car salesmen or car you know yeah. agencies and things like that or on the way to Vegas advertising casinos so it's very flashy and very lowbrow um, and so I decided to use the first message that we had done the the you know the one I just told you about the I was a stranger and you welcomed me and do it in that production method and then do them in Urdu which is my native language and English because uh, one of the things I'd started to do with these signs was putting up like an Urdu translation and then the English translation on the proceeding on the um, on the next freeway and or, or on the next overpass so that it was kind of like you were reading the mm. titles and yeah. sequence but what I noticed was that the Urdu language one would get taken down like in a couple of hours oh no kidding because I think it looks like Arabic so yeah. people are scared, scared of the font I'm sure someone calls it in what is this terrorist message <laughs> it's marking marking you know the Silver Lake overpass they're gonna yeah. blow up all the coffee shops and you know um, whatever oh, whatever so we have too many of yoga studios right. um, and uh, yeah so so yeah so anyway to do these signs in that in that, um, in those two languages, in this very flashy production method, and have a whole kind of congregation of people that are standing there in these costumes that were all kind of silver and glittering, and these face concealments that were made for us by um, the designer Hushidar Murtazai, and you know, of course, face c- covering has the connotation of Muslim Muslimness, Muslim women covering their face, but. I wasn't, I mean, obviously that's a reference that's from my background because I'm from a Muslim family, but I was also thinking about the use of concealment in protest movements like the Zapatistas or, you know, a lot of 
different, you know, kinds of activists will use ways to conceal their identity. So I was thinking about that, and then the interesting thing is that the word for um, stranger in Urdu is ajnabi, which also means uh, foreigner or alien. Um, and then, you know, then so there's that tie of like what is not us is something that is alien. Uh, but something that is alien can also be something, you know, that kind of disrupts your everyday environment and forces you to look at something in a different way. So I was kind of thinking of all of these things. And then also when you come as an immigrant to a con- this country, which I came to the U.S. as an immigrant, you're a resident alien. That's technically what you're called when you have right. your green card. So just all of these kinds of connections and associations. And so we stood with these signs at the freeway, just kind of appearing as a mirage. It was it was uh, me and 10, 11? 10 or 11 other performers who had kind of joined this procession, plus two drummers. Uh, one of them was on Tol, which is a South Asian drum, and another performer was on... Um, uh, the Duff, which is an Anatolian drum. And then we also had like speakers because we were kind of a moving sound system and we had various things from the Swana region. Swana is kind of an internal term for Southwest Asian, North African. Um, stuff that we would play at my, at my night disco stand. And also we had a mix by um, uh, another performance artist named the Sand Ninja. This was a mix that she had made with... Um, Arabian Prince, mm. who was kind of um, one of the um, forerunners of, of electro with with the Egyptian uh, Egyptian lover in LA, kind of like in the eighties nineties. So they were kind of making that like freestyle electro sound. A lot of those beats. Um, if you heard some stuff, you know what we well, know what I meant. But um, so yeah, so there was this kind of like yeah, there was this very traditional sound, but then there was also this kind of DJ mix with these spacey kind of sounds in there as well, and we're just kind of moving down. We walked from the Hollywood overpass to, uh, passed by Lace, went down to Hollywood and Highland, where all the other weirdos are, you know, uh, like all the other <laughs> performers, like Michael, and actually, you don't see Michael Jackson much these days, but yeah. uh, Marilyn was there, you know, and just kind of like oh, funny, gathered right. there with, with these signs, and then marched back, and people just joined us along the way. I was a little afraid, because it was, I think it was a few days, or maybe a week after um, Christchurch. Oh, yeah. So, you you know, when you're, when you're, working with Muslim looking imagery in in this country like you know I know it probably sounds crazy is someone gonna just drive by and shoot at us because you know I mean maybe if we were in Orange County but you know you never know it's like these are the kinds right. of things that like Gosh, that, yeah that must be such a, a, a you know I can't imagine how that would feel like I one of the and one of the reasons I'm excited to talk to you is because um you know, for me, I, growing up here, I've been from Los Angeles, grew up in the shadow of Disneyland, was a surfer skater dude, right? And, um, you know, I taught or learned a lot about art and art history and got involved in that and made art and all that. Um, but my reference is all Western and mm-hmm. what I know in terms of uh, my, you know, focus even in the bookstore, it's all Western. And, um, so, uh, 
to me, I mean, you're not, but I mean, to me, it's like so exotic, right? I mean, I, I, I loved all the areas that you touch on and all and all that. But even in my, you know, I'm well traveled, but I've never been to the Middle East, um, and it mostly because most of the uh, traveling I did was around my pursuit of learning about art. But again, it was all Western, so you know, all over Europe and, and all that. But uh, never got to see. Um, places that I really do want to see and so to like learn about it through you and how you're bringing the experience of uh, of an immigrant right to and and your history right is all super fascinating to me yeah I mean it definitely had the form of the kind of procession you would see so I'm I'm from South India uh, in a very Muslim part of the country uh, there's a few pockets around India that's still remain that way where people didn't migrate over to Pakistan so yeah um, it's kind of the form that you would see a religious procession taking it's kind of all you know people just being chaotic and moving through the streets with lots of noise and making their presence known and and yeah and so and, and the procession would be like a wedding procession or what? it might be a wedding procession but it could also be um, you know a religious procession huh. a festival day a holiday you know People love to be in kind of moving in that way in public spaces. We don't see that as much here, but right. it's a more common there. I mean, when it's here, it feels much more organized. Well, it's around a football team or something. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I was thinking of kind of those elements, but also, you know, it's also a common form of moving if you're... Um, you know, like a political rally or, mm -hmm. you know, these kinds right. of things. So, And then I found out, Daniela told me that in the 70s, there was a group in East L.A. called ASCO, which I hadn't known about, and that they would often do these processions. Yeah. So that was cool because I didn't know about it. And then he was part, uh, Harry Gamboa was part of the, the same show. So that was yeah, a really... Yeah, and uh, she had done a... a, a show earlier at least about that whole thing yeah yeah so it was, it was really um gratifying to know that it was in this kind of you know accidentally or maybe mm -hmm. subcon you know something moving through the collective unconscious of the city to ha be in that lineage or tradition um and and also you know i think one one element that was shared between the work they used to do and what this procession was aspiring to be was kind of this sort of surrealist you know just kind of intervention in the middle of the street because mm -hmm. we were, you know, if you, if you, if I can show you some images. If no, you I've see seen the images, yeah. The, but, it's, yeah. It was just this kind of strange, shimmering, kind of glam, you know, but also kind of strange parade of concealed strangers moving right. through the street. So uh, people were, it was, I, there was actually um, almost over, overwhelmingly a positive response for people on the streets, from people on the streets, people started walking with us and, um, you know, and uh, honking their horns and really excited by it, and that was kind of unexpected because yeah. I had had a lot of fear. Sure. Um, but you know, Hollywood is kind of where all it is. What definitely, happens anyway? Yeah, yeah. They were like going, oh, what, what, yeah, the land what, of like what spectacles. Netflix show? Are they, <laughs> what, what Netflix show are they promoting? Yeah, right? exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> it's it's definitely the place of spectacles. Um, <laughs> But yeah, but yeah, I don't, I, you know, I don't know that much about, um, I, I'm kind of learning a lot about art right now because my background, 
was an experimental film. Oh. Uh, that's I did my master's at CalArts in right. experimental film. Um, and then I kind of... Uh, I, I, yeah, so how did you end up there? Like, so, so you grew up in Southwest... India, did you say? South India. South. So I didn't. I, I came to the U.S. when I was pretty young. Uh, I think I was around five. Mm. So I did spend, you know, all all of my formative years here. But I would go back. And where did you move to? I think in the beginning we were briefly in South Carolina and then Chicago suburbs. And then I. And this the, is because your father came to do. He, I'm assuming I don't know. He came here. Um, he was a physician, mm-hmm. so um, he came here. Uh, yeah, there was a wave of immigrants either going to um, England or the U.S. because right. there had actually yeah there was like a there were two waves of migration after partition, and so they kind of came in the second wave. And um, yeah, so and then by the time I was in high school, I was in South Florida, um, which is. You know, I mean, I think it's changed a lot since I was there, but it was definitely not a creative or an inspiring place <laughs> to be in. More um, like not not Miami then. We were, not Miami, Miami probably like a, a little a little bit north, like an like you know Fort an hour Lauderdale? Fort Lauderdale area yeah. more, which is you know. Yeah, that like, I understand. Any yeah. place that it has kind of like a you know that's a spring break, <laughs> spring bakers. Yeah, place. I, I am no fan <laughs> of Florida. I, I, <laughs> So, okay, so how did you escape Florida then? So I, uh, I was going to follow um, in the family footsteps of, you know, being in science. And, and I'm sure you know that there's the stereotype of the good model minority immigrant that, you know, you, you win the spelling bees all through school. Yeah. And then you go and you become, you know, either um, some sort of engineer or physician. And, and so I, you know, that was actually um, what I was... Planning to do, and then I uh, to I to do to do medicine. Or? Yeah, oh, okay. and um, I had gone to um, I went to school in Chicago, um, and college, college, yeah, undergrad, and um, part way through that I changed to um, I wanted to be a writer, and so I changed to comparative literature. How would your parents receive that news? Oh yeah, it didn't go over well. <laughs> I th- yeah, it didn't go over well at all. Um, and my whole leaving home was oh, not. Right. It was. It was. You know. Um, my family is extremely conservative, so that's the thing. People hear my accent and they often think I'm American, and because I was here. But I would spend three months of the year in India, and I kind of considered that my home because. When I was here, I was kind of kept completely removed. The summers, you're saying, so you would go yeah. like, and back to see other family members. Then, yeah, or? yeah, because you know, our, all of our extended family lived there at that time, and so that would be, and that would be the place where I could finally be like, okay, everyone looks like me, and everyone kind of is living under the same rules, because in America it was kind of definitely like us and them, you know, because immigrants can have different ways of, of adjusting to changing. Uh, their environments, you know, you can assimilate or you can kind of shut shut everything out because you're so afraid of losing, you know, the connection to where you come from. And there's a spectrum of responses. It's not that black and white, but my family was definitely on one end of the spectrum. So I was, you know, even though I went to school, that was it. I went to school and I came home and I didn't really interact with anyone Mm -hmm. that was not from our community of, you know, 
Yeah, you but know it's interesting too about the migrant thing because my parents were came over from well, half of my family's Mexican and they came here in the turn of the last century, you know, the 1800s, 1900s, and uh, and we have kept up, uh, you know, some of the traditions around the holidays. And for example, we do the posada, mm -hmm. uh, and. Uh, and it's a big deal in here. So recently went to Mexico City to visit some friends of the family and for Christmas time. And so I was all excited, like, oh, we're going to have like the Posada thing. And they're like, no, no, we don't do that anymore. In, in Mexico <laughs> said, City? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is a thing that <laughs> and happens. And so it's like, yeah, because like, the we keep up the place of origin right. moves on. Yeah. But anyway, so, when, so what did you decide you were going to write? Like, well, I was, at the time, I was kind of writing prose poetry. I mean, I was studying comparative literature, so it wasn't, it wasn't creative writing, but, you know, that's what I was doing on my own time. And, you know, I was definitely interested in uh, the literature of other languages. Um, I, you know, when you're, when you're studying that, you have to be able to write academically in, a, in another language, which I wish it would have been my own language but I was you know in my early 20s and I wasn't going to design my own major at that point because I was you know and, and and now there are some schools that do offer that language but you know huh. in in the late 90s no one was offering yeah. that so my language was actually Spanish so um yeah how did you come on that oh boom from being in Florida yeah it, they, it's it's pretty common to have, have it sure. in school so I, I, I was learning it from the time I was in fourth grade. So, um, yes, yeah, so Spanish. You know, this is another interesting thing, too, because we used to speak Spanish from growing up. And then as, uh, as the family sort of, uh, my parents and grandparents, you know, assimilated, they didn't want us to speak Spanish. Yeah, it's, it's, it's unfortunate, right? Because now we know that kids can actually be sure. very multilingual and it's fine. It's way better, know? yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I had the opposite experience where we were not allowed to speak English at home, and I'm grateful oh, for that now. It was right. very annoying when I was growing <laughs> up. Right. Um, well, I didn't, but, we didn't really think about it. I mean, you never said don't speak Spanish, but they just kind of stopped, right? They stopped speaking Spanish to us. Right, right. And then so you would just continue what you were doing at the you know yeah, during the day at school. Yeah, you know, whatever. Yeah, you don't think right. about it. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I studied, um, you know, I, I studied complet. I was going to be a writer, and then um, I had, uh, at the time... So who were your favorite writers at the time? Like, like in Spanish, at the time, like the super classics? Or? Uh, well, I wrote in, you know, I mean, I, it's funny, I didn't write my, my thesis on a, on a Spanish writer. I ended up writing it on um, Italo Calvino, who was hmm. one of my favorites at that time, and uh, comparing narrative structure in, in his books to narrative structure in the Arabian Nights. Oh. So, and, and, and the Invisible Cities, Calvino's book Invisible Cities, where it's kind of a similar thing of someone telling a story within a story within mm -hmm. a story. Um, so I was, I was really into to fiction, um, but I had a lot of, uh, postmodernism was very in vogue at the time. I don't know what people are studying these days, but I had Derrida and Deleuze oh. stuffed down my throat. So by the time I was done, <laughs> I was, I was, I felt like I didn't want to read. Yeah. For and I stopped reading for years. I was done with language, because I just felt so alienated by that kind of theory. 
because it just felt so um, deliberately obscurantist. Just, you know, you can say the same thing in a much simpler way, in a much more quotidian way, you know, just in normal language, which I'm not using right now, but you, know, <laughs> you could use it in, in a, you know, you, you can say things in a, in a much more direct way. And, and yet, you know, these writers had decided to, you know, and then, and then we know that they all drove themselves insane and killed themselves. And it's, well, obviously, if you go into this, <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> if you're in this, it's well, completely out of touch. Well, you recognize that, otherwise you wouldn't be here. Really. <laughs> uh, that's yeah, funny. no, I found, I found, you know, I found plenty of other reasons to be depressed, but you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. making a career out of it. I, yeah, well, that's funny. That that um, uh, precipitated your change to film. Yeah, so I was in Chicago, and I would be going to every film screening that I could, I could find you know everything from Stan Brakhage to Tarkovsky and all of these things and I was just in love with image making yeah um, well Brakhage yeah yeah well I, that's yeah I, I walked in I didn't know at all I just knew that he's important and I should go yeah. and I think I walked in and they showed like the autopsy film I didn't know I was walking into <laughs> that and I that's you know I, I don't have a high tolerance for so it was viscera yeah, yeah. yeah. um so what did Immediate. you start to do? Did you move to documentaries right away then? Or you were making... I made experimental, kind of experimental films. Experimental. Yeah. So I went to CalArts, made experimental films. And, um, and I, you know, I chose because I really wanted that feeling of closeness and intimacy in filmmaking. Mm-hmm. That, you know, and I didn't... It's an interesting way to describe filmmaking because it's, it actually puts, a, you know, something between the maker and the audience. Right. Right. Yeah, it's interesting because when you are a filmmaker or an image maker, you're remo- yeah, and also in the process of making it, you're always removing yourself from being in in a place, which DJing also does kind of in a way because you're in the middle of something and you're in the middle of the party, so you're you know you're being social, but you're also doing something that you know, kind of keeps you separated mm-hmm. from being actually interacting, from actually interacting with people. So on the so on the music part of it, you you you've always been following or collecting music or throughout all this period, right? And even though you were focused on mm-hmm. filmmaking, you still have this passion for music, right? Yeah, for sound and narr- sound narrative. I mean when I saw so I when I growing up I was not allowed to listen to any Western American hmm. radio or pop or anything. So it was all in the especially in the eighties, right? Um, but I, I you know, I was, I was listening to a lot of film soundtracks obviously from India because they have, you know, the biggest film industry in the world and then my dad, you know, listened to a lot of classical and, and devotional singers from India and Pakistan. So that's what I grew up with and then when I uh, went to college I had a uh, I went straight to the radio station and then um, signed up to apprentice with an experimental music DJ so I went from traditional South Asian music to John Cage and Zanakis so I and so I like I never had heard Led Zeppelin or anything (laughs) and so I feel like that was an interesting I mean you know it, it kind of definitely shaped the way I listen and the way, you know, 
because it's interesting a lot of experimental musicians also will listen to non-western music for influences so you know it's it's a different syntax of, mm -hmm. of sound i think I, I had been collecting all, like, I was collecting all this music, and mm -hmm. then I had kind of a, you know, a period where I wasn't really in touch with my family because of the decisions I was making. Uh, a lot of um, more strict observances of Islam do not allow image making or anthropomorphic representation. So, not only was I not going to be, you know, in the family business I was now doing something that was kind of controversial mm. with image making um, so there was a long time where you know I didn't I wasn't in touch with my family much but I you know I missed what I had grown up with because I, I had never spent a day outside of their house till I left right. my, my home I wasn't oh, wow. you know uh, I was very sheltered and very much protected in certain ways from you know I never went on any school field trips or anything like that um, and so, because there was so much fear of influence, so it was it was a very strict mm -hmm. upbringing. Yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, so yeah, so I you know I would often return to these soundtracks and listen to them, you know, sadly in my living room by myself, and, and <laughs> you know, and I had like amassed like hundreds of cassettes and records. I always worked in record stores throughout college and. Uh, grad school and even after grad school I worked at Amoeba for a while um, so I was digging for years and uh, so yeah I went to film school I made an experimental film it did really well it had its public premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival and it went to the Museum of Modern Art in New York and that was all unexpected because it was my student film and then I didn't make films for a really long time I stopped making art for several reasons um, and you know some of it having to do with kind of just, I mean, it was a big, it was a big trauma. The I don't like using that word because it's so millennial. <laughs> it's like everyone, every other person has trauma, and everyone is self-caring, and I'm not really into that. But um, I, you know, was it was a, it was like a death, you know, having the separation from my family. From so there family, was. Yeah. So did you go back to the family? You stopped making art. Stopped making art. And did you go back to live with the family? And they're all living in Florida still. They're all living in Florida still. I never went, I never moved back mm -hmm. for any extended period of time. I would still visit them, you know. Um, and. And would they, would there, would, would, what was the, the dinner conversation? Or were they just happy to have you and they stay, all the, all of your work was sort of off limits? Or, and this is after your success at, at the museum, so they must have, like, no, they don't know. They still really? don't know about anything what? that I do. They don't know about any of my art. Really? Yeah. Wow. Um, they don't know about any of it because, uh, yeah, I was recently, I, last year I was on NPR and someone from the community heard me, but my family didn't know. I mean, someone told them and they were like, were you on NPR? And I was like, so, so some of this more recent art I've been doing under a different name because of that. But um, yeah, it's interesting how some people are able to um, really create a separation and be and say I'm just going to do whatever I want, and and some people can't. So and I, I'm, you know, but I still do everything that I want, but with a lot of anxiety. So, yeah, well, yeah. I could see that. Yeah. So yes, yeah, so I see. You know, at, at what happened during that period of not making art and returning to art just. Kind of this last year was that I started this um, party called Disco Stan, 
which was which is an art practice I think and um, you know it was playing this music in in a public space that I had grown up with um, as kind of this you know instead of like I was saying playing it sadly in my living room by myself you know just play it sadly at a at a dive bar with <laughs> well because it's only <laughs> It's all like really like a lot of it is very bittersweet, poignant, you know, um, and then it started. But it's to, all danceable, right? It is all danceable. A lot of it is, um, and then that that started to expand to including music not only specifically from India and Pakistan, but from regions that were kind of connected pre and post colonially, you know, through various forms of exchange or or colonization, you know, including the Middle East. Um, because there has been historically so much exchange between North Africa and all the way into South Asia, and you can hear that, you know, in the music. So it was it. So the name of the party is Disco Stan, and um, it's kind of you know Stan is the land of the land of disco, and um, originally it was all kind of um, throwback in the first like year, and then because of where the music comes from. There's a lot of places that are in conflict, just, you know, regions of, of conflict. So it's kind of providing a counter narrative to what you always hear on the news. Because no matter what's happening, no matter what's burning down, people are still playing music, people are still living their lives. So it became apparent that it was important to also play the music that's still being made, you know, right. at this moment. Because experimental, amazing experimental music is being made in Iran. like you know, bangers are being made in Syria. I mean, maybe not right now, but you know, like mm -hmm. up until the, you know, you, you've heard of Omar Suleiman maybe. I'm sorry? Omar Suleiman. Mm -hmm. He's a yeah. game musician. He's, he he was like from, you know, some rural, a rural area in Syria and, um, you know, was brought to Western attention by, um, by someone at Sublime Frequencies, which is a music label, a diggers music label that I work with um, actually from time to time. But yeah, and at that time, uh, there had there was no space like that, not just so in it, LA. It, so is disco stat a regular night, or do you just? It used to be every month, oh. and now it's. Like, and where was that? That was, that was at Footsie's. Oh, okay. Yeah, so um, yeah, and uh, that was at Footsie's, and now it's every. It's turned into kind of a bigger thing, um, where you know we'll have performance artists so it's kind of a more of an art there's still definitely a dance floor and a dance party but you know sometimes we'll have wedding bands or experimental musicians there's always an installation of some kind that'll be there is this also at footsie no, no so it's moved out of footsie since then it's at various spaces now mm. um so that we can do more of this stuff right. but yeah i mean at, at the time that it started there was nothing there was no space like that in la in the u.s i don't know if anywhere internationally that was like kind of creating that dialogue of not one specific region but kind of this cross region that wasn't just like a world music night because there's always been world music nights but world music nights are like this is everyone else that's not white and let's just throw their music into like one one night you know whereas this was very conscious and um you know since then we've had we've had a lot of um people who have come to the night who have kind of done their own versions and so it's you know People who have come as guest DJs or perform, you know, live performers who have then kind of created their own versions. Fun. Do you have one coming up? Or? We have one uh, 
on uh, an official discosthon on June 29th downtown. Oh, okay. And how do we find out about this? Um, it's on uh, Instagram and on Facebook. As Disco Stan? Yeah. Yeah, so it's all there. And um, it's all kind of grassroots. Fun? Yeah. Yeah, so. Um, and the 29th, it'll be where? Downtown? Downtown at Civic Center Studios. I don't know where that is. That's but, at 2nd and Broadway. It's actually in an office building. <laughs> and by day, um, it, it's a film studio. And at night, oh, okay. they'll rent it out. How did you find out about this? Uh, it was through just friends, yeah. you know, because I've kind of been in the music and art community. I've been in LA since 2001, so a while right. now. Right, and I was going to ask you about that. Okay, so from Chicago and Florida, and then because of Cal Arts, I'm assuming, you then make this your home? I did. Um, I always thought I'd end up in New York. I always felt more like a New York kind of person. But after CalArts, I stayed here. This is a terrible edit, but we had to stop so uh, Arshia could plug her parking meter. Yeah. <laughs> but we're back. And we were talking about Disco Stan, but now you're back making art art, right? Yes. And, like, do you have, like, a studio, or do you work, you know, because you're, like, performer? I, yes. Uh, Presently, I do not have a studio because most of my work has been time-based, but I'm in, I want to have a studio because I want to start making more objects. Uh -huh. But, um, you know, over the last 10 years, even though I wasn't technically making art, I was still traveling, filming, mm -hmm. um, documenting. I lived in Tunisia for a while, somewhere in there. I went to Algeria. I went to Pakistan a few See, times. I love this. That so, is so, so cool. <laughs> so, I mean, I went to Morocco several times. So, and, you know, I in Egypt, I lived in Bombay for six months. And so this that is all, all just, be, uh, now are you pursuing your, your musicology sort of thing? Because like, you've been documenting traditional ways of music making, right? Yeah. Um, or just you were just out on a on a uh, a vision quest. A little bit of both. Hmm. So right after CalArts, I was you know still, you know in my early mid twenties. So I was definitely in vision quest mode at that time, uh, and I always wanted to live outside of the U.S. Um, Tell me all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I, you know, I, 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 I went to, uh, I did live in Bombay for six months with the idea of working in the film industry there, but it works very differently than, um, than the film industry here, which I had been kind of working in, because that's, that's what I did for all those years, is I worked in the film industry. And um, so I ended up coming... So like working on like regular little film projects? Um, not your projects, but I mean, when you were working in the film industry, you were doing, you were... I was an editor. Editing, okay. So I worked on everything from commercials to documentaries to branded content. As a freelancer, did you work for a particular As company? a freelancer. Yeah. Oh, regular employment doesn't suit me. <laughs> <laughs> well, not with a travel schedule like that. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it. yeah, I would be gone three months out of the year, um, at least, and... Um, and yeah, I think, uh, so a lot of it was kind of just, you know, and then I lived in Tunisia for six months because I was teaching English there 
uh, I went to Egypt for a while and I got hired to do a job there working as a curatorial assistant for a gallery but then that was during the Arab Spring and a lot of galleries ended up shutting down. Chaotic, a little yeah, chaotic, yeah. Just a little. I don't know. I, I, I'm sometimes I'm drawn to that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my mom was an ER trauma physician, so I feel like there's this need for adrenaline that runs in us. Huh? Um, Could be. I, yeah. I mean, I just I always end up traveling to places that are a little bit harder to travel in, um, or a little more, you know, just chaotic. Yeah. I, I was in Algeria when, when Trump got elected and then I was a little bit afraid because I do, you know, I, everything I do has been pretty independent. Mm-hmm. So I kind of work and I fund myself, but I'm usually not affiliated. I'm pretty anti-institution. Yeah. So, you know, I've thought about, should I go back and get my PhD in ethnomusicology? I'm already doing the work that a lot of people do. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and sometimes it kind of sucks because, um, you know, people from those realms can can appropriate work or, or, you know, then there's also like the legitimacy that people still give to institutional pedigrees. Right. right. Well, but then what do you do with that? I mean, you have to teach with that? Or? You have to teach, which is kind of a golden cage. Yeah. You have to write, which, you know, I've already... Yeah, mentioned my <laughs> issues with writing. Um, yeah, we don't want you writing. Don't write, please. So yeah, so uh, so yeah, it's the travels were kind of vision questy, and then they started to become more focused. I went to Pakistan a couple of times, which is right next to India, but it's very different. And I was going there because that's where a lot of the devotional music is still kind of being made in a in a very. Um, unfiltered state not that it's not happening in India but because in India because India is more in dialogue with um, the West and has that film industry music but they're in general, getting all crazy commercial. national right Hindu oh yeah they are. like that's but getting that's, all kind of scary crazy national right yeah it is pretty scary right now um, and it's it's I've heard the sh- like shift in the way people talk even friends of mine who mm. are who are Hindu and the way that they now talk about Muslims um, in very cosmopolitan cities like Bombay. It's kind of scary. Um, but yes, yeah, so I, I was going to Pakistan and then I started working on this documentary, which is I'm still working on, that is about Sufi shrines. Mm-hmm. Um, and I became really interested in Sufism because there's this way of practicing where you're really in the body and it's kind of anarchic and anarchistic and... Um, and these are spaces where everyone is welcome. You can be whatever gender you can be. You know, I mean, a lot of people that are mentally ill will go there. It's just kind of this, it's kind of like a Hieronymus Bosch painting huh. brought to life where there's heaven and hell and purgatory and in, everything. In the shrines. In the shrines. Because okay. the people who are the most wretched and most rejected in society come there, you know. At, the most spiritual people come there. The people who don't go there are the fundamentalists or like the overly religious people who are like kind of austere. Particular versions of Sufism that I got to know in in Pakistan and, and to some extent in India are like very uh, much about being in the body and like kind of working against social norms. Like traditionally the Sufi poets were often social justice warriors. They would advocate for scripture to be translated into local languages so people could understand it. They wrote bodies of poetry, you know, 
in local languages that even people who are so-called illiterate now, they can recite you hundreds of pages of poetry. So all of this kind of turns around the ideas of what we, of what we have as education or spirituality. And so I, I'm, I'm really interested in that also because of how I was brought up in this very austere, you know, these are the rules and we follow them. We don't even always know why we're following them, but we follow them because mm-hmm. those are the rules. And this was a completely different way of experiencing the same faith. Um, but a lot of Muslims who are further on the right do not believe in this traditions. And my own family doesn't know that I'm working on a project about this. Hmm. So how far along are you in the project and what do you have to do yet? Uh, I have, you know, I kind of stopped working on it because working as a video editor uh, kind of blunted my sense of working on art film because hmm. the way you work with time for a commercial is yeah. so different. So, um, And the client's peering over your shoulder. Yeah. Yeah, and so it's, it's just a different, you know, it kind of kept me, I felt like, from, from making my own films. But I did release an album of field recordings that I made um, of, of music that is often at these shrines. Um, and that came out on Sublime Frequencies, the label I was telling you a couple years ago. Then I went to Algeria last uh, two years ago because I was trying to find music from um, a particular tribe that had been recorded by... Aisha Ali, the ethnographer that I had um, done a project about for mm-hmm. Lost Notes, who I was also really fascinated by because she was she's a woman the, who just... She, yeah, she's the uh, belly dancing person, right? Yes. Yeah. She's a dancer who just kind of funded herself to go do all of this research. In the 60s, I think, right? 60s, right, 70s. Yeah. yeah. I think by the time she was recording, it was the 70s. She's still alive and she's living in Culver City. Okay. Yeah. So... Um, so yeah, I mean, she's super inspiring to me because she just kind of did things on her own terms and outside of, again, institutions. Um, um, so yeah, last year... So where are you going to go next? Uh, next? I do have to go back to Pakistan. Um, and where do you go to Islamabad or...? I go to, I go to, um kind of r- rural areas ah. in the south and um, but I want to go to Balochistan which is kind of a separatist province it's a little hard to travel there I'm also more and more nervous about going to Pakistan because I'm an Indian not I'm not an Indian national anymore I had to give up my Indian citizenship when I became a US citizen but I have to get a visa to go to mm-hmm. India so if they see that I keep going to Pakistan, Yeah, they might not let me back. And that would be pretty tragic to not be able to go back to your Hmm. birth country. So, so um, you know, I would like to go to Balochistan. Um, I would love to go to Afghanistan. I love the music there. What is is next for you? Um, I think there's been an arc of wanting to be more and more in the body and more and more you know, like away from like having direct and immediate experiences and less mediation, you mm-hmm. know, language is mediation, image, which is still mediated, sound is less so because sound is emotional and it's kind of just an atmospheric thing. And then, like, you know, these really physical experiences, um, and even, you know, even the performance with lace, which was not 
an extreme endurance thing, but still a temporary thing and a, you know, a, about being in a space at a particular time. Um, so that's what I've been interested in. And now I think coming up, um, you know, I want to go back and return um, to the Sufi film and finish that, but I also want to do um, more environments, installations that are environments that you go into. Um, I'm working on something that would be a mourning room or a grieving room. And I got a couple of grants this year that helped. I'm going to take some time to focus on art and I happen to be lucky enough to have these things happen that now I can actually do that for like this year. Wow, fabulous. And I mean, I'm going to have to return to the workforce soon. but. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'll be going to Greece, um, to Athens. I got a residency with the Onassis Foundation, so I'll be, that's like kind of the planned international travel for now, um, next spring. And I'm going to be working with um, Urdu language refugees from... In Greece. In Greece. Mm -hmm. uh, migrants from Afghanistan, Pakistan, um, to document kind of their oral traditions, folklore, jokes if people are in the mood to tell jokes I'm really interested in comedy I bet they would well the thing with comedy is that, that you know it's all context so. right I'm interested in humor and I'm interested in like the um, the power of that I mean because you always hear this people have tragic stories but they're still alive well that's exciting so when would you leave for that's um, that's May and I'll probably oh of, of 2020, so it's oh, a while. Oh, I was going to say, what? We're in May. Yeah. No, no, so it's a while. I'm sure, I hope that I go somewhere between now and then, but I don't know where yet. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of um, locked to California through August. I'm in residence at the Echo Park Film Center for two months, July and August. So yeah, that's what's happening. I mean, it's. I don't plan too far in advance. I don't I know. try. I did, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I try, but, but life gets in the way of my plans. Well, our, our suits are leaving. <laughs> I don't know if you heard him, but he said he wanted to ask you if you wanted to leave your bag somewhere. All right, anyway, hey, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. Yeah, super fun. Yeah. And I want to go to Disco Stan. Yeah, I'll let you know. Yeah, let me know. I, well, how do we follow you on Instagram? What's the Instagram? It's um, Disco Stan, D-I-S-C-O-S-T-A-N. And then my personal art stuff is on my Instagram, which is... Aruna Irani, A-R-U-N-A-I-R-A-N-A, -A -A -A. and if you want to know about my more extreme work under my other name, then send me a message, and if, if it feels okay, I will, I will reveal that identity to you. Well, well that's exciting. <laughs> I'm definitely going to try it. <laughs> Find out what that is. <laughs> yeah, 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 I want to know. I want to know. Alright, well, hey, thanks a lot. Thank you. You've been listening to A.G. Geiger Presents, Tales from the L.A. Art Underworld. My guest today has been artist Arshia Haq. You can learn more about Arshia from her website, arshiahaq.com. That's A-R-S-H-I-A-H-A-Q.com. And follow her on Instagram at Aruna Irani, A-R-U-N-A-I-R-A-N-I. A.G. Geiger Presents is produced by me, Michael Delgado, in conjunction with the Mayfair Hotel, music and artist management company Regime 72, 
and A.G. Geiger Fine Art Books. Check us out at MayfairLA.com, Regime72.com, and of course, AGGeiger.com. Thanks for listening.